Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to Lost in Sciences. Lost in Science is back officially for 2023. And we have a big year of science, but... Obviously, we always do, but not only are we back for 2023, but we have a very special member of the team back for 2023, Claire. Hello. Thank you for returning. Oh, it's good to be back. I mean, it's 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 great. It's a new year. Um, you know, we are going to be reporting on so much new science this year, um, and it's just wonderful to uh, see your smiling radio voice face again, Chris. Fantastic. And uh, have you been well? I mean, you have been gone for a while. Um, I think we hinted you're working on a special project. Oh, I have been working on a special project. Um, it is um, the, the development of a new human. Uh, yes, I did um, have a small child, small baby girl in September last year. So I've been on Lost in Science uh, maternity leave. So yeah, I didn't know we had that provision. <laughs> <laughs> we do. It seems. I know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not until you use it that you realise it is actually yeah. there. So um, I've been listening in and um, thank, thanks uh, to you and Stu for holding the fort so well. Um, and Catriona, who was and um, Catriona. Been joining us, yes. And big thanks to Catriona, who's been joining the team and you guys have been doing a great job. Thank you. And so have you. Um, like, you know, the most important job there is. I mean, that's, that's very cliche, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're doing a fantastic job. Well, thanks. As far as I understand. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Chris. I hope you haven't, um, yeah, you haven't seen my Google reviews. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure she hasn't left too many so far. But, uh, yeah. Well, she, she can't read yet. So um, that's, yeah, true. that's probably good for my Google reviews. So you've somehow managed to find time to put together a story for us. Well, What's going on? Yeah, you know, um, I thought I'd sort of ease back into it. There are a lot of stories that I would like to cover this year and there's a lot of science that's going to be coming out this year that obviously we're going to cover as well. But I thought I would start a little bit closer, closer to home, something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, now that I have a small baby that demands a lot of attention um, for all of her needs. Um, and that is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking into the animal kingdom and realising, you know, it's not all animals that need the level of support and care that a small baby human needs. Um, you might have heard of that, the idea of a fourth trimester, the three months after mm-hmm. a baby's born. Well, um, I mean, to, in my mind, the looking after a baby goes way past the, past the first three months after a baby's born until they're actually, you know, able to look after themselves. So I'm going to take a look at evolutionarily um, in the animal kingdom who and, and what animals – 
look after their young and what animals are in that sweet position where they, um, you know, might just give birth and then that animal's good to go, that little baby's good to go because they have, I have to admit, there have been times that I've been <laughs> dreaming about <laughs> whether my baby could be, you know, more gazelle than human, <laughs> learn to stand yeah, up on her own yeah. two feet a little bit quicker than she is. Um, but, you know, that's most of the time she's an absolute darling. So mm, that's mm, what I'll mm. be talking about today, Chris. How about you? Great. Well, uh, look, glad to hear that you have, uh, I guess, your finger in the pulse of science and the science stories that are coming out this year. Because we do like to cover the big science stories here at Lost in Science. But people have been pondering lately, how big are these science stories really? Um, what, what I mean by that is there is an awful lot of science going on in the world, as we all know. But are we getting the breakthroughs that we should be getting with such mm-hmm. amount of science? I mean, should, I guess, is a, is a loaded term. But essentially, this is about a study that was recently published in the journal Nature. has got a bit of attention looking at the what they call disruptive science. Mm-hmm. So papers that and discoveries and inventions that kind of change everything. Uh, and don't just, don't just build and continue existing work, but just change everything, change the, the landscape, how they they're becoming less frequent in terms of the proportion of papers being put out. And some, yeah, some work to try and, I guess, quantify that um, using some very creative ways. And then, I guess, yeah, trying to explore the possible reasons for this. Fascinating. I am so interested to hear how they can quantify that uh, and, you know, what that means or, like, you know, whether there's any way that they can be, that, that we can, move towards a more um, paradigm-shifting version of science. Exactly, exactly. It does sound a little bit whingy, but, you know, that's what I'm here <laughs> for anyway. All right, so we've got quite a bit of, um, of whinging and wailing from babies and from me. So, yeah, on with the show. All right, Chris, so you may have noticed, I haven't been on the radio for a while, as you pointed out in the introduction. Yes. And I and I haven't just I, been I have been aware of that. <laughs> and I haven't just been taking a holiday. I've been on maternity leave the last four months. Uh and it is very good to be back. Um now as I said in the introduction, um I now have a very small little baby girl. She's amazing. Um, it's a very special time, this first three to four months of a baby's life. You know, we're, I'm getting to know myself. She's getting mm-hmm. to know me as a parent. Um, you know, everything that she needs doing, I have to, me and my partner, do for her. I'm learning so much. Um, and that's pretty weird because, you know, I also have to rely on my memory, which isn't that great because I'm not getting a lot of sleep, let's just say. So all those short-term memories. Um, they're disappearing pretty quickly, I have to yeah, say. Yeah. On the other hand, I get to see her grow every day. The other day I woke up and um, she had eyebrows where she really didn't have eyebrows when she went to bed, I'm pretty sure. Oh. <laughs> and then, the other, and then you know, she wakes up one day, she starts making a new noise. It sounds a lot like a cat. 
I'm like, okay, wow, this parenthood thing, new things every day. It is pretty amazing. Um, Now, like all human babies, uh, they might not all sound like cats, but all of them are um, something called altricial. Say what? (laughs) They're altricial. Um, now the opposite of altricial is precocial. Now, have you okay. have you ever heard of this word be- these words before? Altricial and precocial. I've heard of precocious and yeah, that being applied to like yeah, baby yes. animals that sort of things. But yes. precocial in that form, I don't think I'd heard. Yeah, so precocial is yeah, it's the same root as precocious. And it implies early maturity, right? So um, altricial means to nurse, to rear, to nourish. And um, that indicates the need for young to be fed and to be taken care of a long duration, over a long duration. So altricial applies to human babies and it means that Unfortunately, they do not mature very quickly. We need to nurse them, um, to rear them, to nourish them. It is um, a wonderful thing, but you know, can does take a lot of time and a lot of um, effort on behalf of the parents. Whereas precocial mm. animals, um, they are ready to go uh, pretty much straight away. So yeah, my little altricial baby's four months now. Um, and, you know, she can hold her head up, she can roll over herself. Uh, but anyone who lives in the world knows that that's really not enough to uh, be an in- independent individual. Mm, it, to get a job. To get a job. <laughs> exactly. You can't really fend for yourself. Uh, uh, so today I'm going to look at what I consider probably my favourite kingdom, other animals in the animal kingdom, and uh, those ones who are altricial and are as helpless as my child, and as well um, those that are precocial and who I dare say are probably getting more sleep than me or, you know, um, are up and about a lot sooner than my baby is. So let's start with animals that are born with the skills to survive from birth. These are the precocious or the precocial ones. Now, there are a lot of these types of animals that use this strategy across family groups. Apparently, it's believed um, this is a trait uh, uh, common and ancestral in a lot of different birds. So you'll find this in, for example, birds such as megapodes, so like bush bush turkeys, um, but also birds like chickens. They're pretty much born, they dry off, and they're ready to go. So little chicks... Um, that hatch from an egg will will be ready to go very quickly. They just you know fluff up like little fluff balls, and then they're pecking pecking at grass uh, pretty much pretty much straight away. They they're, don't need to learn to fly, and they don't need to learn to fly either. They don't need to be mm. um, to sit in a nest and sort yeah. of uh, be fed by their parents or anything like that. And also bunch of different reptiles are precocial. So as you probably know, turtles who mm. lay their eggs uh, in holes and then leave them and then, then the little turtles have to dig out, dig themselves out of the holes and fend for themselves. Mm. Terrifying. When, terrifying. Terrifying. 
when I think of precocial animals, these types of animals um, do come to mind, but the other ones that come to mind are those big herbivores. That those ones that have been known to, uh, you know, fall onto the ground after birth and be up in literal minutes running around um, and just running with the herd, so, so to speak. Now, if you are easy prey, it's probably going to be a huge advantage for you to be able to move quickly and almost right after birth. So many of these animals are mammals and they're herd animals and they need to be up and ready to go with the group as soon as possible. But what I have discovered is even, you know, within these precocial animals, there's a spectrum of abilities. So take, for example, the blue wildebeest. Um, I know that's one of your favourite types of wildebeest, Chris. Can I call it the the blue new? The blue new. <laughs> the new blue new? Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely, we should. Um, and these wildebeest are amazing because the calves can stand within an average of six minutes from birth. Six minutes! Mm. That is, that's like, I don't know, like shorter than Stairway to Heaven being played out. Like that is. <laughs> don't fact check that. But, yeah, yeah I think you're right. Don't fact check that. The extended version. Um, and they can, so that's standing, and then they walk within 30 minutes. Mm, okay, wow. Yeah, and very cleverly within one day. So 30 minutes they can they can walk, and within one day they can run fast enough to outrun a hyena. So that's, that's pretty cool. Um, and this is pretty quick even for precocial animals. So they have they have this advantage over other herbivore species. So um, it's been shown that these wildebeest are actually 100 times more abundant in the Serengeti than their closest relatives, which are the heart, hearty beasts. Okay. Um, now, the hearty beasts take up to 30 minutes or more just to stand and um, you know it can it can take ages That's for them. That's ridiculous. To, I, yeah. No, I know, right? Up to forty five minutes before they can follow their mothers. So and and then you know it takes them up to a week to be able to keep up with their mothers. So can you imagine how many hyenas will you know picked exactly. off exactly yeah. the little hardy beasts? Mm, yeah. yeah. So um, interestingly, one generalisation of these precocial um, mammals is that they have a longer gestation period and they tend to be found in animals that are big enough and strong enough to be able to provide, um, you know, a, a safe uh, space um, for the mother to be able to gestate them for a long time. Yeah. Now, in contrast, animals that are born with an altricial strategy like humans, so that is um, they need to be looked after and nurtured for a much longer period of time. These animals, you know, a lot of them are carnivores. So if you think like cats and dogs um, and then a lot of marsupials, I think the biggest mammal is a panda that's altricial. Um, 
not a carnivore, but um, quite a large. But related to carnivores, so. but related like they're to in the carnivores. bear family, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then some birds as well, if you think like eagles, owls, songbirds, um, mm. you know, they all make nests and have those, have um, young that demand a lot of their time. And the general thinking is that this type of strategy develops in species that aren't migratory and more territorial lifestyles. So mothers of altricial young are capable of bearing a fetus in earlier stages of development and then focus closely and personally upon the, the raising, teaching their young about the world and all social interactions um, as opposed to leaving it to instinct. So if you think about those herd animals, there's a lot of instinct there, mm. um, whereas these altricial animals need a lot more time with their parents learning the ropes, <laughs> so to speak. So, yeah, here we are with our little altricial babies who take, you know, arguably up to 18 or more years to fully develop our brains, wow. um, yeah, let alone our survival and thriving skills. Um, and yeah, this extra time, I guess, that our babies have, it's a bit of a evolutionary trade-off as you can imagine for having such highly developed brains capable of managing all those things that we need to manage, complex reasoning, learn logic, communication, social interaction. I mean, sometimes we spend a whole lifetime trying to develop these skills, <laughs> but in general, the, in altricial species, the more information about behaviour that a baby animal has to absorb from adults, the more important the role of long-term parental care is in bringing the little ones into the patterns and practices of the group, which starts to explain, I guess, the long road that, um, you know, myself and um, the little baby are on and um, where she'll be going into childhood and adulthood. And, you know, I guess, Chris, although it is, going to be a long road I guess I wouldn't trade her for a wildebeest any day of the week and that's the good good news that's the <laughs> in the history of science novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left field inspiration nothing shocks me I'm a scientist but I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science as a scientist I don't want to prejudice my experiment I'll let you know in the morning I am a scientist. I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Yes, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, regular listeners will know that I have a background in particle physics. Um, I, you know, I don't like to talk about it much, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, and regular listeners would know that is deeply sarcastic. But um, look, people, a lot of people like to follow, are interested in particle physics and like to follow it. Uh, and if you do, you might be aware that, uh, look, the current theory we have was pretty much set down nearly 50 years ago and not much has changed since, which leads a lot of people to start questioning the direction that physics is going in. Is Has physics lost its way? Do we need, you know, some sort of new ideas to shake everything up? Um, what are we doing? Uh, and often people talk about a crisis in theoretical physics because um, they get a bit working about this. But look, it turns out that in this defence, physics is not that unique. Oh, in what way? 
Well, so basically a similar pattern is being seen in all fields of science and technology even, based on some new research that was published in the journal Nature recently. Um, they tried to look at what they call disruptive science and invention. Um, so I should say talking about inventions as well as, you know, scientific papers. Um, I think you in the intro called it paradigm shifting. Mm. And they found that there was a decline of that kind of mm. um, seen across all fields of science. Um, look, it's the kind of thing that has been talked about for a while, not just in physics. I um, mean, people have discussed it in individual fields and have, you know, done some studies on it. And there have been, I guess, high-level concerns from policymakers and other kind of leaders about the productivity of science, considering that, as I said in the introduction, we're kind of in a golden age of science. There is more science being done than ever before. Uh, and yet sometimes it feels like the pace of these breakthroughs has slowed. Um, and, yeah, there is this concern is are we getting... You know, I guess, you know, from a lot of funding is, is government, comes from government. You know, are we getting our, um, our return on our investment? You know, what is all this all leading to? By the way, I should say, I don't want to bring down anyone's scientific work in this sense. I'm just sort of looking at, you know, the whole idea of disruption. Like, I think if you've seen, like, the um, the new movie on Netflix, The Glass Onion, um, the Knives Out movie. I, ha- I haven't seen it, but um, it is on my list. Yes, it takes a kind of a cynical look at the concept of disruption. So when I saw the title of this paper, I was a bit, actually thought it was a bit, I had a bit of a cynical response to it. But they make some good points, shall we say. Anyway, so this is um, work that was published in uh, the Journal Nature by Michael Park, Aaron Lee and Russell J. Funk. Um, uh, all in the United States, I think. Park and Funk are from Minnesota, whereas Lee is from Arizona. And, yeah, they basically looked at papers and patents between 1945 to 2010. They had something like 45 million papers they looked at and 3.9 million patents um, to try and look at patents and try and work out, you know, is there a change to the patents of of, um, of science? Uh, I mean, how do you even start to look at 45 million papers? Uh, through With computers, there. Uh, they involve various supercomputers and things. So they obviously developed an algorithm for judging what they call this kind of level of disruption and kind of an index. They called the CD5 index. Um, and what they essentially do is they look at uh, networks of citations. Essentially, what they're looking at the citations of citations. So the idea is that you look at a paper, a paper has a lot of you know, citations of work that it references. Um, and then other people will build on that work and they will obviously cite, if they build on that work, they'll cite that paper. And this is the normal kind of process of science. But what they essentially come up with the idea is that if it's a really disruptive, paradigm-shifting piece of work, then people will tend to cite that paper. They won't cite its predecessors as much. Mm. So an example they gave was a Watson and Crick um, work on the, the double helix structure of DNA based on, of course, on Rosalind Franklin's uh, imaging. Um, and, you know, Watson and Crick would have referenced previous theories yeah. for how DNA is structured. Now, once they publish that, they change the landscape. No one is going to be referencing the old outdated theories anymore. Mm, mm. They're only going to be referencing the new idea. Mm-hmm. 
So that's essentially the the, the idea for that. Um, they give some examples of non-disruptive science. Um, and look, the ones that they've got in, in their paper, they're not really well-known ones, so a bit hard to describe. Um, there's been, this, this work has attracted a bit of commentary and some of the examples given in commentary, I'm not so convinced will fit. So for instance, um, some people are saying that, for instance, the um, recent development of the vaccines for COVID-19, which is a very important development, is not itself necessarily disruptive because it's based on technology that's been under development for a long mm. time. Similarly, the discovery of gravitational waves obviously is going to change astronomy, but it was based on theories from a long yeah, time ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's some of the commentary. Um, reading the paper, the paper actually seems to suggest that those are perhaps disruptive. I know from reading the way that they describe it themselves, so I, I don't know where the, the jury lands on this, but you get the idea. We don't actually know, I can't actually describe those ones themselves because, as I said, they studied things from 1945 to 2010, um, not right up until the present. And yeah. that's because yeah. they need to give a bit of time, obviously, not only for their analysis, but for the citations to happen in at least five years after the paper was published to look at the patterns of citation rather than just saying, oh, no one's citing it today. It was published last week. I mean, give it a, give it a chance. So, yeah, and as I said, they found this steep decline um, over this period, 1945, 2010, that's what, 55 years? No, hang on, um, 65 years. And it was a steep decline in the earlier decades that's kind of leveled off into the 2000s, which is interesting. And it's seen, like I said, in all fields of science and also in patents and inventions as well. Do they take into account, I guess, um you know the the major award like awards like the Nobel prizes and stuff like that and sort of like how um we as a society have celebrated scientific breakthroughs over the last you know 50 years and how that sort of compares to the citations uh they discuss that they haven't like studied that um quantitatively as far as I can yeah. see, but they discuss it a bit. Some of the papers that they single out as non-disruptive have actually were, were like Nobel Prize winning work. Um, so they made a big difference in that field. But again, building on previous work so much, not really changing anything, more just consolidating our knowledge in a particular field. Mm. Um, so you do get that. And they also point out the, I guess, the longer time we're seeing between the work being done and the awarding of a Nobel Prize. So it takes a lot longer now for, I guess, to recognise the significance of something. Whereas back in the olden days, you know, someone would publish a paper that changes everything and would go, oh, Nobel Prize for you. And that doesn't happen as often. Like it takes a while for it to actually sink in, I guess, that it's important because things aren't as paradigm shifting. Mm. Um, but yeah, they, they tried to look at um, some explanations for this. Um, like a few possibilities that, that come to mind. One is that there may be a lot of the low-hanging fruit, like the easy discoveries have already been made. But they think that the fact that this is seen across all fields, the same kind of pattern suggests that you know it's unlikely they would all have the same kind of low-hanging fruit hanging the same height. <laughs> You know, they investigated the idea that it's, it's kind of changing practices in citations, um, but they did a little cross-checking in different ways, trying to use different algorithms for doing this, um, you know, getting this measure of disruption, using different data sets, um, and also different methods. They looked at the language being used 
in papers. And so, for instance, there was a lot more kind of words being made up decades ago because people had something completely new, so they had to make up new words. And also a lot more words related to discovery and um, something being new as opposed to just building on the work that had been done before. Um, so, yeah, they, they tried a few ways to go yeah, verify that this wasn't just an artifact of, I guess, the citations being seen. Um, so then we get some of the uh, kind of more possible, I guess, interesting kind of notions. Um, so they talk a bit about Isaac Newton's famous quote about how he saw further by standing on the shoulders of giants. Now, this is a theory of, I guess, philosophy of science that suggests that as knowledge builds up, then you have more to build on and you should be able to have more discoveries and more knowledge because you have more giants and taller giants to stand on. Um, but they counter this saying that what we're also seeing is that with the huge amount of knowledge, the people are having to specialise more and more. And often the real big breakthroughs come about through, I guess, a bit of a broader knowledge and uh, yeah, look, thinking outside the box kind of thing. Um, another thing that's been observed in other work is not addressed so much in this particular study, but has been um, looked at by other teams, other researchers using similar methods, is that um, pretty much in all fields of science, you're seeing larger teams of researchers and they're known to be less innovative than the smaller, mm. uh, smaller groups. So that's another thing. But there's another really interesting thing that they observed, which is that, as I said, there is a huge amount of science being done and the proportion of papers that are considered disruptive has declined rapidly. But the actual number of disruptive papers has remained fairly constant. Right. So kind of raises, you know, makes you speculate perhaps there's some sort of like inherent capacity for innovation or something that, you know, discoveries will be made at a certain time and you can throw more and more researchers at it, but things will come when they come. Um, and I look, I know that this, when I was in, um, when I was working in theoretical physics, you know, you would have hundreds of, hundreds of, well, at the time, it would have been, you know, a lot of dozens of papers being published every day, being written every day. And all these people, hundreds of people around the world um, working on these, um, this particular field. And a lot of them, most of them can't be right. You know, there's only going to be a handful that they actually go and have the right answers to things. And so a lot of it is just people just filling in the gaps, I suppose. And so, again, I don't want to denigrate anyone's work, but I'm just saying that, the, um, that you know, maybe the disruptions will happen when the world or when the knowledge is ready for it. And just having more people working on it is not going to create more of those disruptions. That's a possibility. But um, they did find that the proportion, like I said, of disruptive papers kind of did vary a bit in individual fields. And so it does suggest that perhaps there is some other factor rather than just some clock of innovation happening there and that there maybe is things that could be could be done about it to generate more uh, innovative papers. Um, they have uh, a lot of the usual solutions that people suggest for these things, you know, um, being less, you know, like I said, being have broader knowledge, um, less pressure to publish quickly and in large quantities, longer grant periods, mm. you know, giving researchers more time to build their stuff. You know, again, the usual solutions that, that researchers always love to put forward, but um, are genuine things, but yeah, are not kind of what we're seeing in, I guess, the funding, uh, the funding world. 
Um, but look, another slightly interesting thing was that some of the most disruptive work doesn't necessarily get the most attention. And you talked about like, um, you know, Nobel Prize kind of stuff. I mean, thinking not so much of that professional attention, but just like what we see in the, the public world. Mm. So I think the, the highest score they had for disruption was a, a patent for a genetic engineering technique. Uh, was discovered in 1983, uh, led on to lots of other advances, but didn't receive much public attention at the time. Um, right. You know, was was really significant, but very most people wouldn't know about it because it did not receive much attention. It was just kind of behind the scenes, but it was highly disruptive. So I guess, you know, as I said, disruption is still happening. Maybe we don't notice it. Um, we don't really realise it until we have hindsight. And, yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like there's a um, there's a whole lost in science sort of um, uh, show or you know multiple stories that we can do on sort of some of these underappreciated and undervalued scientific disruptions through the ages. Yeah, I think I think so. We need to bring them to light. Maybe that's what we can do. Uh, that is after our job here. All our job here. I mean, things that have been lost. In science. Exactly. Oh, my God. It oh all God. makes sense, Lloyd. It finally <laughs> makes sense. We've just been filling in the gaps for so oh long. God. Finally, yeah. we found our calling. Yeah, great. <laughs> well, thank you, Claire, for, um, for <laughs> making everything make sense all of a sudden. <laughs> And that's it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science is recorded for 3CR in Melbourne on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We would love you to get in touch with us. You can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook where Lost in Science on 3CR or on Twitter where we're at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your favourite podcast app where if you get the chance, please give us a good rating and review as that will raise us up in the search rankings so other people can find the science. Or you can listen to us however you listen to us now where the same time every week when we all get Lost in Science. Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.